Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is Dr. John Kellum, MD, FCCM. He's professor and vice chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also past president uh, of the Acute Dialysis Quality Initiative and co-chair of the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Clinical Practice Guideline on Acute Kidney Injury. Uh, We're very happy to have him here with us today to give us an update on renal issues relating to the critically ill patient. Thank you very much, Dr. Kellum, for being with us today. Pleasure to be here, Richard. I thought we'd begin by, uh, and as many of you may remember, Dr. Kellum joined us on a phone podcast, I guess a couple of years ago now, where we initially spoke about the important rifle criteria, and it's a a few years later, and I thought we might get a 2010 rifle criteria podcast update. if you could sort of take it from there, that'd be great. Sure, sure. So, so maybe to remind everyone, uh, it's important to, to recognize that the rifle criteria are meant to provide a diagnostic and staging framework for acute kidney injury. So the rifle criteria uh, essentially encompass uh, three stages of, of uh, severity of acute kidney injury, risk, injury, and failure, or stages one, two, and three, uh, and then two outcome measures, which is loss and end-stage renal disease. And they're uh, defined on the basis of two of the things that the kidney does that are easy to measure, which is to make urine uh, and to remove uh, creatinine from the bloodstream. And so as creatinine rises and as urine output falls, you advance through these stages of acute kidney injury. And it's important to recognize that although it's called acute kidney injury, it encompasses a spectrum of clinical disease, which includes true parenchymal injury to the kidney, but also includes decreases in function, which may or may not map to specific pathology. So it's important to recognize that um, the criteria are based on a change uh, from baseline. So um, if you have a creatinine that's, say, one milligram per deciliter and it rises uh, to one and a half, you meet the criteria for acute kidney injury. And um, I think, you know, prior to developing these guidelines or developing these criteria for diagnosis, it was quite possible to have patients uh, in the ICU coming through the emergency department that had, you know, slightly abnormal creatinine and you just didn't know whether this was acute kidney injury, you didn't know whether it was chronic kidney disease, and you didn't really have a framework to sort of work from. Uh, You didn't know how to uh, code the patient for diagnostic purposes, uh, for epidemiologic purposes, and for treatment purposes. And so all of this is meant to lead to advances in the care of these patients in all those domains. So for example, the ICD-10 codes, when they come out, uh, are, they're meant to map specifically to these kinds of changes in these particular stages. So um, that, that's been a, a large part of this. I, I think the other point that I'd like to make is that <clears throat> the rifle criteria uh, are obviously meant to advance 
care of patients. So right now, they've been primarily used to get a handle on the epidemiology, and they've been very successful of, uh, uh, in, in applying a similar or identical criteria across multiple different patient populations and getting a real sense of what the population incidence of this disease is, which, by the way, uh, runs at about 2,000 per million population. So it's very similar to the risk of, uh, of uh, uh, acute myocardial infarction uh, in, in the Western world. So it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, the second thing that these criteria were meant to do is provide a framework for management of acute kidney injury, and that's what we're working on through, uh, through KDGO, uh, the uh, Kidney Disease uh, Improving Global Outcomes uh, guideline that you, that you mentioned. And so unlike uh, ADKEY, unlike the Acute Dialysis Quality Initiative, which was the international interdisciplinary group which proposed the rifle criteria initially, um, the KDGO group is a much larger, uh, much more, um, shall we say, um, regimented approach at developing a clinical practice guideline. So there is a uh, evidence review team that appraises the evidence, builds evidence tables, and then a panel of, uh, of nearly 20 investigators or 10, uh, nearly 20 uh, clinicians comprised of intensivists, nephrologists, radiologists, cardiologists, uh, and pediatricians uh, have come together to develop this guideline. And we can expect uh, that guideline uh, out, uh, Richard, in, in, uh, in, in late spring, early summer uh, of this year. And it's going to be all keyed off of uh, rifle criteria so people can say, uh, what do I do if I have a patient that has R? Uh, what do I do if a patient progresses to I? Uh, what's the monitoring that's required? What, you know, what things should I be thinking about? Um, and so to give you a flavor for, for some of that, um, one, uh, one has to take pause, I think, a little bit as one sees that mortality as you go through these stages goes up dramatically. Uh, and many of these patients never go to intensive care units. And so one of the questions that I think the community needs to address is that does a patient who's got acute kidney injury, and particularly if it's progressing, uh, you know, should they be in an ICU and should they be getting controlled resuscitation and should they be getting assessment of cardiac function and, and all of that? In addition, I think it, it, it provides an opportunity for practitioners uh, in other parts of the hospital to say, gosh, I've got a patient with acute kidney injury. I'd like to make sure that I've stopped the nephrotoxins. If I have questions, I'd like to have a nephrologist to see them, if I have questions about their hemodynamics or, their, or, or other cr critical illness-related uh, aspects, uh, I'd like an intensivist to come see them to see if they need to go to the ICU uh, and all of that. And it all kind of comes back to having criteria for making the diagnosis. I'd just like to take a second, and you know, I was looking at a recent review article that shows your famous graph where on the x-axis it shows glomerular filtration rate and on the y-axis creatinine and that you can have these 50% drops in glomerular filtration weight rate with your GFR going from 0.8 to 1.2. And I was just wondering if you could take a couple of minutes, and you've spoken about it already, but I, I would just repetition might be helpful, is me standing on rounds talking about the rifle criteria, what I would tend to do now and when I go back on service next week is I would see a patient who's coming in or they just had abdominal surgery and they're developing early sepsis and I'm seeing that their creatinine's going from 0.8 to 1.5 and I've 
given them volume and their adequate CVP and the echo shows the LV function is normal, but their urine output is still saying low. And I was just wondering how you might want someone like me to start integrating the rifle criteria into my routine practice. Sure, I know you alluded sure. to it. but You know, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, on the other hand, I think if you've already have the patient in front of you in the ICU and you're already attending to these questions, you've already done so the you're bulk happy, of the you're work. you're happy with me that I'm well, thinking Well, yeah, way. so maybe we could find a few things we m- might think about doing uh, differently. But... But imagine that um, the bulk of these patients are being seen at a stage where they've already progressed to I, to F. Uh, they're the first time they've ever seen anyone uh, who um, can evaluate their etiology, they're being asked to do dialysis on this patient. And so I, I think, you know, one of the things we talked about a lot in developing this guideline was is this guy, you know, and it was during the, the financial meltdown, so the terminologies became um, uh, obvious. But we were talking about, is this really for Main Street or is this for, you know, I ICU doctors who care about um, these sorts of things. And of course, it is for ICU doctors who care about these sorts of things, but it's also for, you know, the bulk of clinical practice, which occurs in critically ill patients, but they're outside the ICU. And so it's, you know, it's very interesting. If you have lung injury, uh, you go to the ICU. If you've got cardiovascular instability, you go to the ICU. Frequently, if you've got uh, a stroke or you've got an uh, altered mental status, you go to the ICU. But Many patients are managed on the floor with changes in creatinine that, until recently, we didn't think were that important. I mean, you know, a patient has a creatinine of 2 today. Is that an indication for an ICU admission? Well, if their baseline creatinine was 0.6, you know, that's pretty substantial decrease uh, in renal function. And uh, to preserve renal function, uh, uh, it may be necessary to put that patient in the ICU, ensure adequate resuscitation, uh, ensure adequate... Uh, cardiac function, et cetera. So this might be the kind of thing that a electronic medical record could have programmed into it as a like a sniffer, like a village. I'm so sniffer. glad you said that. Oh. So there's there's efforts on in multiple places, and I get emails almost um, almost every week. Uh, from places asking about how to how to do that, because a lot of places have already moved toward the EGFR approach. And so when you get a creatinine now, you get an EGFR, and they've already got software in there that says if an this estimated. An estimated glomerular filtration rate. So, and this is important for management and identification of chronic kidney disease, but it's not helpful when the creatinine is changing. So there's software already in place that says, hey, I won't report an EGFR if the creatinine is changing. But if the creatinine is changing, then they're at risk for acute kidney well, can injury. Well, you, can you expand upon that? Maybe not everybody knows that in terms of if it's changing in the GFR and the accuracy. Yeah, so I mean, the only, really, the only way the EGFR uh, is an estimate, is a, a reasonable estimate of glomerular filtration is if the creatinine has reached some steady state. Okay. If creatinine is changing, then it's not helpful, and so it could be misleading. So a lot of people have have screened that out from their laboratory reporting if it's altered. But that provides an opening because you could say equally to the to the uh, IT management, you can say, look, if the creatinine is changing, then they're at risk for acute kidney injury. And if it changes to the meet the criteria uh, for rifle, then they have the the, the condition. So that could and, pop up. Your exactly patient is right. at risk. You, your patient has R. Uh, or, you know, uh, evaluate your patient uh, for it. Also, it's interesting because clinicians often have difficulty finding baseline creatinine levels. And in, certainly in right, some right, right. large institutions where the computer systems can, you know, go back to the clinic records, et cetera, and help integrate some of that stuff, it can really be very effective. And you said it was also 
this rifle criteria was designed uh, as, as for research as well so that you can say that the patients that were put in your study of with acute kidney injury, X percent had this versus this level of acute kidney injury? Well, so I, you know, I, I think that the, the, the main reason, I, that's essentially right, I think the, the, the main reason that uh, the criteria are more than just a yes or no is the recognition that the kidney, probably unlike any other organ, it, it, f- kidney failure is exactly the same as kidney success or kidney uh, normal kidney function in its early stage. So if I deprive the kidney of of renal blood flow, the very first thing that the kidney should do is to decrease the GFR, Um, and it does. And and a marvelously functioning normal kidney will decrease its function to protect itself and to protect the body from hypovolemia. So there's nothing wrong with the kidney at that stage. Uh, but it, yet, at the same time, it, it, it's, a, it's a marker of something abnormal in the physiology. So the equivalent in the lung would be as if you were absolutely normal and then suddenly needed to be intubated, never a shortness of breath, never dysmenia, yeah, something so you could like think that. Of, uh, you could think of uh, sort of early kidney dysfunction, our criteria, et cetera, as kind of that equivalent of the equivalent of a shortness of breath or a renal angina, if you will. Um, and so, so having criteria that allows you to pick up on those patients for inclusion into clinical practice guidelines, maybe inclusion into clinical trials, uh, but yet at the same time, they don't necessarily have the kind of card-carrying parenchymal disease that uh, has a pathologic correlate uh, that you could identify, and that if you wanted to say, look, I only want to include people that have really significant disease, then I might pick people that are progressing to I and F, or, and this is actually how I think this will play out, you've developed more sensitive biomarkers that will come up early that will tell you this patient not only has AKI, but they're going to develop INF criteria. And potential prevention points, and I would imagine. And then you can do prevention studies, right. Um, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes letting you speak about a topic that still remains interesting to me, working in a surgical ICU where I may take care of vascular patients that have received a lot of dye, and that's uh, what, what volume replacement should I be giving a patient to try and decrease them from getting contrast-induced nephropathy? And I know you recently um, authored a review article on this. Yeah, I think that, you know, the uh, the most important thing you can do uh, is get the fluid in. And it probably matters much less what the fluid is. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the, uh, bicarbonate, uh, like N-acetylcysteine, before it re- continues to be um, an interesting and colorful uh, agent in terms of its... Um, in terms of the fact that there's been no clear proof or no clear disproof uh, of, of efficacy. Uh, and I think with each new meta-analysis, including ours, the confidence interval for the effect uh, has always just kind of moved and danced around the, the, uh, the, the, the point of unity. Um, and, the conf- and the point estimate's always been in the kind of, you know, range of being small but potentially important. And so uh, we continue to look at these agents with a lot of interest, but I think we can conclude safely at this point um, that if there's an effect, it's probably a very small one, and it probably is much smaller than the effect of giving fluids. And so the first thing you have to do is give fluids. Uh, your choice, I think, is is reasonable to say at this point whether they should be bicarbonate-based or or uh, or not. So two follow-up questions is 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 to talk about the N-acetylcysteine for a second. So is in your mind is that is that kind of Away well, you know, point? I think the fact that it continues to, to be unclear 
you know, you, you would think, you know, typically as you as you get more studies in place, the confidence interval shrinks, and you either say, look, this is beneficial, or it's not. And the fact that we continue to do these studies, and the confidence interval continues to kind of dance around, and some sometimes it's positive, and sometimes it's it's just barely uh, negative, tells me that there's probably something to this agent. And the same, I think, is true for bicarbonate. There's probably something to them both. Um, it, the effect size may be so small that it's hard to detect with a reasonably sized study, the sort of studies that we can reasonably do. And so I would still, uh, given the fact that there does appear to be some signal for both of these, uh, in a patient for whom you really have a high concern, and there's no contraindication to these agents, so a patient's already alkalotic, for example, I wouldn't give them bicarbonate. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for, the, for patients without contraindications, uh, my practice continues to include both of these agents. It does. Yeah. It does. The, um, I mean, and you, you mentioned something, I was kind of laughing a little bit, it was the, uh, as someone who's tried to be excited about evidence-based critical care since I finished fellowship, is that the, the, in critical care, I've I've watched over the last decade where they keep repeating the studies, and and we can't seem to to get it narrowed down, and it it's it's a little bit disheartening because I w- can't imagine, or maybe you know, are there further big planned studies for something like this? I can't imagine there would be. They're, they're not that, that I'm aware of. Um, uh, the interest and, and energy around, um, you know, it's a par- it's a paradox, right? Because on the one hand, um, it's unlikely that any single therapy. Um, is going to have such a big impact uh, on outcome, particularly when we use hard clinical endpoints like death or dialysis or those sorts of things, um, on on some of these particular factors. If you could, for example, prevent an episode of contrast nephropathy, uh, you know how many. Right. Episodes of contrast you have to prevent in right. order to, to to show hard clinical endpoints, and so so these are difficult uh, uh, things to do, and and you know I think some of these things have uh, likely but small uh, efficacy behind them, and you know I, I, my practice would be to continue to consider these agents for patients that are particularly high. But risk. clearly volume, clearly give clearly the volume. volume, yes. And then um, as our last talking point, you were an author on an important study recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and if you'd like to give the specific title, uh, that would be great, but focusing in on the intensity of renal replacement therapy in the ICU with some surprising outcomes. Well, so you've, you've mentioned another uh, negative uh, trial, and I guess, you know, to, uh, to us that really was the surprise, although certainly if you put it in the context of, of the comment that you just made, it, it shouldn't have been surprising to us that it was going to be negative, as many of our trials are. But I think w- what's probably been lost in the discussion about this trial uh, is probably some of the most important points, and one, and one is when we designed this trial, we said that um, it would be unethical to give a lower dose of renal replacement therapy um, than what was than what was being recommended. And what was being recommended at the time was to give three days a week uh, intermittent hemodialysis with a delivered. And the way we measure an intermittent dialysis, the way we measure uh, uh, dialysis dose or intensity is the is KT over V. And without going into what that means, I'll just say that a KT over V of 1.2 is considered to be the standard. The problem is um, that nobody actually gets a KT over V of 1.2 for three sessions in the ICU 
in, in reality, unless somebody. So that might be the target, but there would be issues of having to stop early for hemodynamic exactly, reasons? Exactly, exactly. And so people get truncated uh, therapy, nobody measures the dose that they deliver, and so it's a, it's a real problem. And believe it or not, and we were amazed at this uh, when we published on it a few years ago, continuous therapy is the same way because patients, the system goes down, there's right, a staffing right, right. issue, a uh, patient needs to go to a CT scanner, and what you think is a 24-hour run is turns out to be an 18, 18 or 19 yeah. hour run. But in the context of a careful clinical trial, you put a nurse coordinator at the bedside and you ensure that the patient receives that level of therapy and no less. And then when you compare it to a much higher level, you find that there's no there's no further benefit. But you have to remember, you've suddenly delivered much more therapy than has ever been delivered uh, before. And what we think has happened in this, and, and certainly what I think um, some of the data on the amount of dialysis that patients received bears out, is that they received a lot more dialysis uh, than is typically done. Um, now, you could do another trial, which would be a cost minimalization study, where you said, okay, I'm going to compare this dose of dialysis to a lower dose. But I think until you do that, and I don't think that'll actually ever be done, the standard of care is to actually provide for a delivered dose of therapy, uh, which is actually much higher than what people are getting out there. So I would recommend uh, that people get, uh, that people receive on CRT a, a prescription for 25 to 30 mLs per kilo with the understanding that that will lead to a delivery of 19 to 20, which is what uh, was delivered in the ATN trial. On intermittent therapy, uh, my recommendation is that people actually measure the KT over V. Were the, I mean, just to, to back up a little bit, can you talk a little bit, just for maybe fellows who are listening that don't actually know this, but what was the big picture design of the study? It was It was comparing intermittent with continuous, or was it comparing? No, so it, so it was not a modality study. So the way the study was designed was uh, to measure intensity of dialysis um, through the, one of the two modalities that we typically use, but use them both in all patients, uh, depending on their hemodynamic stability. So when patients are hemodynamically stable, we t uh, in America at least, we typically, in North America, we typically use intermittent hemodialysis. And when patients are not uh, stable. We either use uh, SLED, slow, low-efficiency dialysis, um, which turns out to not be used very much at all uh, in reality, but we do talk about it a lot, or we use continuous therapy. Um, so in the trial, the, the, the study was basically designed around the concept that you would receive intermittent if you were stable. You would receive continuous if you were hemodynamically unstable, basically if you were on pressors. Um, and you would be randomized to receive a high intensity or a higher intensity. And I say it that way on purpose because the, the randomization to the high intensity was the standard, but it was more than what people actually received in, in clinical practice. And so um, and when you measured the, the KT over V, it was 1.2 in the in the what was the standard one? What was the target KT over V? So same top? target KT over V, but yeah. twice as many dialysis sessions. So it was so more frequent. Right. So instead of three times a week, it was six times a week. But each one of those sessions was the same intensity exactly of right. therapy? Exactly So you were increasing your weekly dose. Correct. Is that right? Absolutely right. Okay. And Whereas on sorry. the continuous side, uh, was ratcheting up from a, from a delivery uh, of 20 mLs per kilo up to 35 mLs per kilo. Do you also measure KT over V for continuous? No, oh. no. So the, the uh, dialysis dose in continuous therapies is measured 
typically by the total effluent rate. So that's the dialysis rate plus the ultrafiltration rate. And, and that's where that number 20 mLs per, per kilo comes from. I'm sure I'm not the only listener that doesn't quite understand that, but thank you. Um, and uh, what was your uh, primary endpoint in your study like this? How did, did you decide it? Was it 28-day mortality? 60-day mortality, 60 day mortality. Uh, which is more typical for uh, renal failure studies. Uh, and there was absolutely no difference, and there was absolutely no difference in any of the important subgroups between, again, this high dose of therapy and a higher dose of therapy, which tells me that we've, since we already know there's a dose-response curve for dialysis, tells me that we've reached a sort of plateau on the dose-response curve where further in increases in dialysis for, for the typical patient uh, does not improve outcome any further. And um, was it by protocol whether the patient then, I would, I would imagine it would be by protocol, they would go back and forth whether they were receiving continuous renal replacement therapy versus intermittent depending on their hemodynamic state? Exactly right. Idea? Exactly, exactly right. And so as you pointed out, this wasn't saying that your hospital needs to be doing continuous renal replacement therapy or not. It was trying to say that no matter how you do it, uh, you don't need to go higher than this. That was sort of your conclusion of this? So, so I, I think that's fair, although I do think that, that continuous therapy becomes more or less the de facto standard of care for uh, patients that are hemodynamically unstable. Now, there are other strategies to provide renal support for patients that, are, don't, that, have, uh, that aren't able to tolerate intermittent therapy, but the, the most standard approach uh, is to use continuous therapy in those patients. And one of the, but on the other hand, one of the things that I don't think this study, study disproved was people like you taught me, you know, but if I see a patient who comes into my unit and I'm initially admitting them and treating sepsis and it looks like they're having evidence of renal issues, I want to get my renal consultant in early. Uh, it didn't disprove getting early involvement well, in, in fact, patients, in, or in, did it? Well, no. In, in fact, it didn't address that it didn't specifically address that question at all. Um, the study design was designed to look only at intensity. Um, and you could argue that if you've reached a point where intensity is adequate, then the next question comes is timing. And I think that's very much the question that needs to be done now, uh, needs to be answered now. However, there's a subsequent trial that's been published, the renal trial out of Australia, which confirmed the results of the ATN trial, but actually extended it a little bit because it demonstrated better outcomes than the ATN trial by about 10% if you look at um, With the higher group? Or, well, or both groups were the same again, so it was okay. exactly the same result. No benefit for intensity, but the overall benefit, uh, the overall mortality was 10% lower in the, in the, uh, in the study in, in Australia, the renal trial, despite there being very similar patient cohorts. These are not all sepsis patients, though, or anything? They, weren't they were sepsis just critically ill? Critically ill, uh, that had acute kidney injury for a variety of different reasons. And one could argue that there's case mix issues and various other things that make the Australian population different from the U.S. population that were not uh, easily measured in, in, in the study. Nevertheless, one thing that was obvious was that patients received renal support much earlier in the course of their ICU care in the Australian study than in the American study. Now, there may be different reasons for that as well, and people may not have developed their AKI uh, as early uh, in the American study relative to their ICU uh, um, uh, admission. But nevertheless, it, it does raise a, a yet another piece of evidence to support the, the notion that maybe early therapy is, is important. And I, I think it's rare that life-sustaining therapy uh, is, uh, is not more effective when it's provided early. Okay. So um, just to summarize for myself, so the big picture on some of your recent work has shown that higher dose or, again, going in somewhat against some earlier studies showing daily versus alternate day dialysis 
may not be critical as long as you're addressing it and providing, as you described, a reasonable weekly dose of dialysis. And the intuition is that earlier is better, and that is in the process of being attacked in a formal fashion. I, I, I think that's fair. I do want to. I just want to make sure that anyone listening to this um, does get the message, though, that um, this is not. The study does not show that the current way we provide renal support in most places is because acceptable. we missed the target. Because we haven't achieved the target. And I think. And and one of the things that that I I hope is not missed in all of this is that people really do recognize that it's fine to. Target target the, the, to deliver the dose uh, that was in the control group because it was no, no worse than the group in the, in the higher intensity. But it's absolutely imperative that you don't deliver anything less than that because if you're less than that, you're outside of evidence base. Is there, again, maybe this is another one of my silly questions, but is there any way that you can coordinate with your nephrologist and say, how did we do on our KT over V dose today? Well, so, so I think that, that intermittent hemodialysis um, is largely is the responsibility of the of the nephrologist. Um, I think, however, that when you consider why we fail to provide the therapy, most of that's in the hands of the intensivist. So um, when we have a patient who, you know, develops atrial fibrillation in the ICU, um, you know, do we just say, you know, and they're 15 minutes into their dialysis treatment, do we just say, look, take them off dialysis, we'll treat the AFib, and then we'll skip today? Okay. Uh, when the patient develops hemodynamic instability, do we say put them on CRT or do we say, ah, just flush back the, it gives some mannitol. If we can't complete the session, it's okay. Um, I think that intensivists need to advocate for adequate dose of renal support in these patients. And it's really our job to do that. On the continuous side, it's in almost entirely our responsibility because yeah. why don't you get an adequate dose? Because the catheter's malpositioned, we put in most of the catheters. Because there's a road trip that's required and you don't get the people back on, right. and, and we're responsible for that. Um, we're the ones that provide leadership in terms of staffing and various other factors which get in the way. So I think largely, if the nephrologist comes to the ICU and writes an order that says a patient should receive it and we don't carry it out because... So most of the time they'll be coming up with a dose that's, that's, yeah, that I you think would so. be happy and with. And I think, you know, in, in, in the setting it, certainly, I think it would be it would be uh, um, uh, advantageous for us also to be aware of these data in the same way we're aware of how cardiologists treat uh, you right. know uh, cart disease uh, and and to make sure that patients get the therapy that they should. But I but I do think it's a collaborative approach. Well, Dr. Kellum, I think we've uh, come to the end here. I uh, I enjoyed speaking with you last time, and this time was no exception. And I look forward to our next time in a few years to get another update. We've been speaking today with Dr. John A. Kellum, MD, FCCM. He is a professor of critical care medicine and vice chairman of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. And he has been helping me get a better handle on the most recent update on patients with renal dysfunction, acute kidney injury in the intensive care unit. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. My pleasure. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over four years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program offers hospitals an unparalleled opportunity to benefit from the experiences of peer leaders dedicated to critical care performance improvement. Through the use of engaging tools provided by SCCM and others, Paragon utilizes a combination of self-assessment, teleconferences, site visits, 
peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. Hospitals interested in becoming a Paragon participant to positively transform their critical care units should contact Lori Harmon, RRT, MBA, Paragon Critical Care Manager at 1-847-493-6403 or via email at lharmon at sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.